1: This is KUCI in Irvine at 88.9. You're listening to Privacy Piracy with Mari and Lloyd.
2: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We have a great show tonight. This is Privacy Piracy, and we are actually on a field interview right here at CalIT on the University of California, Irvine campus. This is great. I have a whole team of brilliant people around me that I'm hoping that I'm going to understand tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about our show here tonight. We and we have Chris Davison, who is the information technology expert here at the program. Chris is a technology manager for the two National Science Foundation-funded research projects known as Responding to Crisis and Unexpected Events, or Rescue.org. It's actually www.itrrescue.org, and ResponseSphere, which is www.itrrescue.org response.sphere.org and this is also on our website the research projects are housed at the Cali- University of California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology at Cal IT2 Right here at the university. And he has over 20 years of information technology experience. He's terrific, and he's sitting right next to me. Chris holds an AS in computer science, a BS in information systems, an MBA in technology management, and currently he is getting his Ph.D. in organization and management, IT management. So I've got this brilliant guy here. His research interests are business continuity and disaster recovery, which is we're dealing with quite a bit tonight, and ethics and privacy. He's presented extensively and published extensively on this area of, um, expertise. And we're going to talk to him right now. And let's get started. Chris, will you got your? microphone right here.
3: Well, thank you for such a wonderful introduction.
2: And thank you for joining us. All right, so tell us a little bit about this project. I know we're sitting here with all sorts of toys around us here. Looks very exciting, and we find out that actually there's a lot of smart buildings right here on the campus. So kind of give us an overview and commas and everything, what all that means.
3: Okay, so um, as you mentioned, this is the rescue and response for uh, projects. We are an NSF-funded project to the tune of about $15 $15 million. One grant for the rescue project and, the, and the, uh, a smaller ITR award to uh, pay for all the, the toys that we like to call high tech pieces of information technology. Yes. <laughs> so um, we were started in the, uh, the aftermath of 9 11. So, as researchers, the researchers got together and wrote a grant that, uh, as computer scientists and as sociologists and engineers, they thought that uh, there's something they can do to help with um, help first responders save lives and property and as you can see that is our basic mission is to to uh, enhance the ability of of first responders to to save
2: lives so, right, because we know in 9-11 they didn't know who was in there, they didn't know where the firemen were, they didn't know where the police were. No Communications
3: so, broke down. Yeah, the, everything. You had first response agencies going to the same floor in the same building, evacuating over and over again. So so one of the technologies that uh, we've, we've looked at is this backpack and this idea of situational awareness to kind of prevent that redundancy of effort and uh, try to uh, impact search and rescue by distilling it down to the absolute shortest time it could take i really
2: i gotta have you talk about that that backpack that that <laughs> it looks wonderful and you kind you started to show me before the interview tonight so let's talk about that because that backpack is is really amazing to me so,
3: so one of our primary motivations is uh, to effect effective response by virtue of creating quality decision-making and that quality decision-making is predicated upon accurate and timely information and that's where that a backpack comes in it it provides situational awareness of, of what's going on in the field to incident commanders there on the site but not only there but to any regional operations center or even a nationwide emergency operations center so through the combination of sensors and what you see there is just this concept of a human being as a sensor being um, being provided in real life. So it, ha- it has optical sensors on it. It has acoustic sensors on it.
2: So let's talk about that. You have this helmet over there, and it looks like a regular <laughs> helmet, but really let's talk about what's in it. Would you pick up that helmet for us? And what's your name? I'm sorry. Uh, Sigma, will you, will you bring that over so we could, I wish we, I should take, you know what I'll do, I'll take pictures also so we can have some pictures. It's amazing. So, this. So this
3: that pack. helmet has over $1,000 worth of avionics in it. You can actually fly an airplane by the <laughs> instrumentation that's in that helmet. Um, for, for situational awareness, if a first responder, it has GPS, and you can see the GPS on the backpack, that gives you some layer of granularity, GPS does. So you can know within N amount of feet where a first responder is. With that helmet, we can actually tell in 3D space the tilt, pitch, and roll of a first responder's head. So so um, think of it. If so you're, if you're
2: looking for a policeman or a fireman, you know where he is by his helmet.
3: And what he's looking at. And we can affect decisions he's making. If he turns his head and he's looking at a... Uh, a unknown box and right. we have information on whether that box is biohazardous or or whether it's electrified we can actually push that information whether it's schematics or whether it's a material safety data sheet push that down to that first responder
2: right so even if you can't if you lose um, audio communication you can still communicate it with him by sending things through visual
3: right and, and by virtue of, of the networking infrastructure now if, if the infrastructure is, is uh, collapsed or unavailable, we can also affect that. Those boxes over there are what we call mesh routers. And our San Diego counterparts created those for us. So what do those do? So those can bring communications and networking to the incident site. So if you are at an incident site that's not a smart building or a smart space like response I see. Rate, um,
2: It creates a smart it space? It creates
3: it for you. So as you're going along, and we can send those in either robotically or with human beings. So you can see a number of little robots we created there, but we also uh, inherited the DARPA autonomous vehicle, and they're now part of our project. That so was how big o- are those?
2: These are little guys. These are little robots over there. The other ones, um, you can see a picture speak, of speak, it. Speak oh. into the microphone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can see a picture of it over there, but it's actually a, a two-seater electric car. Oh. That, But it's an autonomous vehicle, so you don't necessarily put people in there, but you just put more instrumentation. But right. the idea is that... Uh, You could tell it where to go and what to drop off and and then have that do it. And that way you're not sending your first responders into a a potentially hazardous Mm -hmm. area. Or, and with that autonomous vehicle, this also provides situational awareness. So it can stream back audio, it can stream back video, it uh, can be put with sensors that will tell us temperature, light, humidity. Light and lumens level, acoustic levels in dB. It can tell acceleration on an XY axis. It can also uh, tell uh, magnetic rating, so it has a magnetometer on an XY axis.
2: Yeah. The other thing you were telling me is that if, if you walk in, if you're a policeman or a fireman, and you walk in with these packs on and you don't know the building at all, it gives you like a whole navigational. Thing
3: Absolutely. Right there,
2: that you see it now. Is it in glasses that you wear, or you, are, you are you they wear goggles? Those,
3: you wear those glasses that have a heads-up display. can... Can you, they look yeah. like little safety glasses, but they okay. have a heads-up display. They don't affect your vision very much at all. I mean, there's one small sector of your vision that that's encompassed by the display, but you can see you have about 95% of uh, the rest of your field of view is unobstructed. And, you know, of course, there are high-impact safety glasses as well. So so they can withstand a pretty good beating. But yes, one thing we can do is provide situational awareness of, you know, material safety data sheet information or, or potentially hazardous chemicals. But probably the more interesting thing you can get out of that is real-time, location-based awareness of the people in a smart space.
2: Right. So if somebody is uh, knocked out or something like that, they've been hit, there was a bomb that hit and a bunch of people are on the floor, you can see that they're there. They don't have to be screaming for help.
3: Right. And that prevents you from going on a search. That uh, is very iterative and very useless. If you look at uh, how 9-11, you know, or or just the the standard search policy, is very iterative. Start with this room, move to the next room. And 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 wasted
2: time. Somebody could die in between. A
3: lot of wasted time. And here at UC Irvine, you know, we have, and I happen to be one, a floor warden. And each floor warden is responsible for evacuating his or her floor. And each floor warden reports to a a building coordinator. And the building coordinator reports to the uh, zone captain. So the way you're trained is very iterative. You just start, you evacuate this room, you put the right. placard on it, you go to the next one. What we're hoping to do is reduce that search space down to the absolute minimum it has to be. Right. So imagine here on the fourth floor of Cal-IT2, it's midnight or something, that, and uh, you know, something bad happens, a fire goes off. If you're a first responder, you can come in, you can get updated situational awareness that says, yes, the building's on fire here, and there's one person over here. Don't waste your time even going over there and put yourself in jeopardy. Just go where that person is and get up.
2: So these backpacks are, are fantastic. How much does a backpack like that cost?
3: Well, we, we calculated the software that went into that, and uh, between all of the situational awareness and software, and most of us here are computer scientists, and that's, that's uh, you know, really what we do, we probably have over 30,000 lines of code in the software. Wow. Now, as far as the hardware goes, we created this hardware with off-the-shelf components that anyone c- it can duplicate and as far as the hardware goes, even with the avionics, we're into it maybe four thousand dollars for hardware.
2: Okay, so that's something that's reasonable in terms of putting together for a, a team, like sure, you know it's the orange county sheriff and and the you know and the fire and all that stuff when we're talking about crisis. And then how much of that software do you actually need? Or if you make enough of it, it must go down in price, right? <laughs> no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I think that uh, most of our software is. University property, <laughs> so we'd have to discuss. No, with mean, the if university. you
2: if you really were going to use this, I mean, the intent is to to do the testing so that it could be used in real life. If God forbid we sure. have a problem or we have a nine eleven type incident or just something that's a major disaster and we need to p- get people out of an earthquake hit, so I mean, so you would need the software, not the just the Absolutely, hardware, right? Because
3: that software is what's actually providing you situational awareness. The hardware in and of itself is is not doing anything incredibly unique or or, right. or, or, or uh, incredibly smart it's the software and that idea of sensor fusion and situational awareness right. is where we're really making a big difference
2: right so so in the real world how soon is this going to be available to the orange county fire department and the orange <laughs> county sheriff department i mean it's wonderful stuff but the real uh, that everybody would be asking is when going to be available
3: well <laughs> the people we work with Almost on a daily basis, are these first responders? They're the ones giving us feedback. You can see the uh, the gas sensor that's part of that uh, a pack. That has, it is a, a multi gas sensor that feeds in um, CO2 levels, it feeds in oxygen levels, it feeds in um, hydrogen sulfide levels, and what's called LEL lower explosive limits. So that can tell us that uh, when that's moving into an environment that has uh, you know, explosive hydrocarbons in the air, that's telling us that, what the LE, or what the uh, explosivity level is. And it can read in parts per million. So it's a very, very sensitive piece of equipment. But that was really our first responders insisted that that be incorporated. So in they're
2: that. helping, giving you feedback. All, right. and all then, the time. And, and so you've got government partners. I'm looking here, the city of Irvine, Los Angeles County, Orange County, Department of Homeland Security. So the, what is the long-range go- or short- or long-range goal into getting these cities to have these available to them?
3: Well, our shorter-term goal is to work with them to create technologies that are useful and practical for them. So, so we, we don't create any of this technology that we're working on in a vacuum. Even our privacy technology that we're working on, which is – Which is
2: what we're going to get to next,
3: yeah. (laughs) Which is what we're going to get to next. But even the privacy technology, you know, we're working on it by listening to people or, or, you know, maybe by reading more research papers to find out, you know, what's going on out there and where can these problems be addressed. As far as our search and rescue technology, that we're working a lot with uh, environmental health and safety folks. Uh, Rich Toro from the Orange County Fire Authority serves on our CAB board. So he's actually a community advisory board member. Uh, Ellis Stanley, the uh, emergency manager for the city of l a he 's the president of our cab so we 're very much connected with the first responders and we 've came up we 've come up with a uh, a set of integrated artifacts that are actual deliverables to first responders so this idea of a disaster portal this is an information dissemination portal to the public we 're working with the city of Ontario with the simulator that we 're releasing this on our on our website this simulator that could simulate either Building level or incident level evacuation response, or even larger uh, response activity that simulates how the, how a uh an earthquake or, or some sort of event would impact traffic flows and things like that. Mm-hmm. All of this we're working with the city of L.A. on because that's something our president of our cab said, if I can answer these questions or at least run simulations yeah. on this, it yeah. would be wonderful. So we're working actually with a private company to help mm-hmm. co-develop that. Our information dashboard is something that takes uh, all of this disparate sensor information and, and communicates it. This idea of a policy engine, that's something that uh, how how government agencies Share information and disseminate information, but you know the policies that govern their information sharing, and as you know, working in that area can be rather complex. Right, and right. Uh, it's oftentimes non-existent when uh, when an, at a disaster event happens.
2: Well, let's kind of get to the privacy issues because when you're using a lot of this technology, whether it be video surveillance which on one hand you say video surveillance is great if you're looking if somebody is has passed out or or is ill or something like that and you can't get to them you want to be able to see where they are that's great but um... So there are some privacy implications of video surveillance in terms of secondary use or keeping it too long or getting into the hands of wrong people or how else it might be used. Let's let's talk about some of those privacy issues. I have these wonderful scientists sitting in front of me. So what is their team, Chris?
3: <laughs> All right, what do well, they
2: do? <laughs> Tell me which team I'm talking to first.
3: Well so for the um in the general sense, you're talking to the rescue privacy team, which is okay. another research thrust that the National Science Foundation, who is our funding agency, asked us to look into the privacy implications of information technology because they're very much aware that yes. as we are, that when you create these smart spaces with, you know, this pervasive environment with this you know, all these video sensors, these these you know, acoustic R- sensors, radio the, frequency
2: identifiers, right. all
3: this RFID. You know your cell phone, the signature that that cell phone leaves behind. All of these GPS
2: te- that I'm carrying.
3: <laughs> all of these technologies have a lot of privacy implications, right. and like you said, in the hands of the wrong person, there's some really bad ramifications
2: right or if it's used for a secondary use that really wasn't it wasn't meant to be i mean for 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 helping to save lives that's great but then what if it's used for something else that could be invasive and could be embarrassing or could be hurtful or something
3: and, and else and another issue that concerns us is the privacy issues concerned with technology adoption yes so if you see a camera go up in your building or in your office you as a resident of that building or a worker there, you automatically have privacy concerns. So what we're looking at as social scientists is the, um, what kind of barriers to technology adoption are there within the domain of technology? Right. So we actually have uh, some very interesting uh, research questions in that area. So you know, what can we do to assuage those fears and, and kind of create technology adoption by virtue of having addressed those fears up front?
2: Okay, so we have these wonderful scientists that are working with you on your team, Chris. And so let's introduce themselves and tell us what they're working on, and then we'll get to some of the questions. Go no, go ahead. Yes. Go. Go no, no, yes, yes. Don't be shy, Ronan. Go
4: right ahead. I'm Ronan Weissenberg, and uh, I'm working in the privacy group uh, under the guidance of uh, Sharad Maharotra. My name is Simboyu. I'm also a graduate student here with uh, Sharad. Um, My uh, primary research focus is on location privacy. As you just mentioned, uh, there are like um, in video surveillance systems, there is a lot of people moving and uh, hiding identity uh, by like masking out faces. That's biometric uh, features, that's one way to do and that, mm-hmm. that, but that's not the project that I was involved in. I think Bidget was in that project. Okay, with but another your, yours, your area so is video
2: surveillance. Is that what you're looking at?
4: Not uh, exactly. So I work with location data. So video surveillance is one source of the. For, GPS? Yeah, GPS, cell phones, those.
2: Um, RFIDs, like I'm wearing this yes. badge that I have to wear that pulled up my picture when I walked <laughs> in the room. <laughs> okay.
4: Yeah, so basically I work on the location data collected from uh, these. Uh, electronic devices and see how this data can be used to identify uh, users. And that's a big privacy uh, concern for users. Right. when they decide whether or not to release their location. So basically spatial anonymization is the term for this technology that we are working on. But I don't want to go to details.
2: Okay, yeah. we'll go to, in details in just a minute we'll come back to you. So we'll just hear who everybody is and what you're all working on. Go ahead.
4: Okay.
0: My name is Hujat. I'm also a student of Professor Mehrotra. Okay. I, along with Danny and Ronan, and another student, we are working on a framework which is called SATFARE, which is a system for providing sensing capabilities for different environments and to getting information from these environments and providing some kind of pervasive spaces.
2: Okay so tell me how that would be used in the real
0: world. So one of the applications is surveillance for instance we have different sensors deployed in this building as you have seen.
2: I see there's surveillance cameras around here. Yes. Okay. Um,
0: cameras is just one of one type of sensors that we have we have RFID readers we have uh, different small sensors which we call them moats and
2: okay the, so let me let me go over it so the RFID sensors for exactly like they were in between the door and they were they read it when I came through the, the door right, they were right. like little boxes and then another box Then exactly. what are the other ones the moats would you say moats
0: they are small sensors that they can I think Chris can give yeah, you here's, some here's a, uh, very samples, samples of them.
3: right there on top of that battery We've, we put a moat on there and as small as that device is it senses light and lumens levels, it senses acoustic levels in dB, so because of the rise of, of, of the acoustic level in this room, we can tell there are not zero people in this room anymore, but there are N amount of, of people in this room, and as that keeps increasing, we can get a somewhat, somewhat of an idea of how many people are in here. Now, we, we take advantage of the This concept called sensor fusion. So between the optical sensors, the acoustic sensors, and the RFID sensors, we get very granular readings. But you don't always have that. So anyway. Okay, so I see that. I'm
2: just want because they our audience can't really see what I'm looking at. I'm looking at this little robot that has a little black thing on it. That's I don't know. It's about the size of I don't know two an inch and a half, like a half inch wide thing. Yeah. Anyway, so so that's that's another sensor that picks up. Oh, I see. That's pretty little. Okay, yeah, and that that's a little tiny computer, huh?
3: Yes, it, it runs its own operating system. We can program that. Um, so, in addition to doing acoustic levels and light levels, it does um, uh, temperature sensing. It does humidity sensing. It does acceleration and GPS coordinates, and that's why it's on that. Uh, little robot so we can tell its acceleration and it also has a built-in magnetometer so we're getting magnetic readings on the x, y axis as well and you can see where that kind of sensing would be important to first responders so you'd want to send something like that into an area well before you send a a first responder So
2: you're not going to have a robot in every room, this is only when you have actually a, a crisis you need to send the robot in and you don't know if there's a bomb in there or what else when a person can't go in there or
3: Is it fire retardant too? Um, it, this prototype, no. That, that's an idea called intrinsically safe. So that means if it's fire retardant, if someone steps on it or it falls down the stairs and lives through it, if it uh, is not producing any kind of a volt, external voltage or external sparks that you know can set something off, and the answer to that is no. What we're proving here is a concept, and we're also proving... Um, our software in, the, in, in an environment that we can start sending sensors. Right. So in order you, could to, probably,
2: yeah, you could probably eventually do something that could make it safe and yeah, fire retardant. I mean,
3: a lot of people ask us that. You know, When do we see the evac pack? When do we see these autonomous mobile sensing platforms right. is what we call that. When do we see those in the real world? Um, right. That would actually require a, a, um, a, a good deal of effort on our part and a lot of expense to create something that you know, would be intrinsically safe. So At that point, we'll patent it. And uh, if any company out there is, is uh, interested in licensing technologies, you can see Kevin Cannon in the UCI IP office. Okay,
2: so we've been listening to Chris, Chris Davison just now, and now we're moving on. Did you want to finish anything more? Um, the on only that?
0: thing is that uh, all of these the system that we implemented for uh, gathering information from these sensors, they also have uh, we have also considered privacy concerns here because we can gather information about people and how to preserve their privacy while we get just the required information. That's one of the challenges that our team is looking at in that very project.
2: Do I assume that when we talk about privacy we're we're talking about the ability for users or people like you and I to be able to control the information about us or at least be aware of when it's being collected that it's transparent? Are we all on the same? What does privacy mean to you? Is that what we all are talking about, Mm -hmm. information privacy? That's
3: correct. And that, that's absolutely correct. And we also approach it from a theoretical angle. So if you look at uh, what James Moore and and, uh, and folks like that, how they define privacy, and, and uh, I think what you'll see here is an actual instantiation of what Moore calls his um, access, restricted access, access control theory of privacy. So where we restrict access as... Owners of our own information, whether it's my social security number or whether it's my likeness, <laughs> um, <laughs> you can see uh, what we're trying to do is enable that uh, what Moore has conceptualized, is, you know, that rest- restricted access and, and control theory of privacy, so that uh, I have control of my privacy, whether it's hospital data or whether it's my likeness, and I'll be able to to see um, set my privacy knob. So I may have a policy in place that says, in a normal course of the day, if I'm not violating any privacy, I want Hojat's technology to mask out my video um, s- traces. I want uh, Zimbo's technology to to uh, obfuscate my uh, trail, my, my acoustic signature and, and uh, my GPS signatures, both temporally and spatially. I want all of that obfuscated. However... Now when you say
2: obfuscated that means just d- deleted is that what you're talking about getting rid of it means that it's first collected Because if, in order to know if you're doing something wrong. It has to be collected first. Is that right?
3: If if I don't violate policy, I don't even want that collected, but that, that, that should be my choice So if I set my privacy knob to 10 that says don't even collect it if I set it to 8 that would mean uh, Perhaps, I'm hypothesizing here. But that would mean, okay, you can collect it, but never disseminate it, if as long as I don't violate policy. Now, we should have an opt-in that says, uh, I'm totally opting out of the system, don't collect it or, or don't do anything. But if I opt into the system, because there's a benefit associated with it, right. so we look a lot about cost-benefit ratios. Um, so s- say, for instance, I want to opt into the system because I want to be aware when there's fresh coffee, I want an alert.
2: Oh. But, when there's that kind of benefit, okay.
3: or yeah, probably more realistically speaking, if an earthquake happens and this building collapses on me, I want my privacy not to go to zero. I want every first responder, my mom back in Oklahoma, to know that Chris is in his office and the desk has collapsed on him. So, so what we what we try to inject is this idea of a dynamic. Privacy policy engine that means um, Zingbo's technology goes from hiding me or obfuscating me depending on, on how I select it as a user I have complete control of that it goes from obfuscating me or hiding me or dropping me completely to letting the entire universe know Where I'm at and what my condition is
2: right? Okay, so let's go in and hear from Danny. I got to meet Danny. He directed me here. And this is funny. In this high-tech building, we couldn't find this room. So <laughs> that tells you something. I needed a, a GPS to get here. All right, so Danny, tell us about you.
5: Well, uh, in my case, uh, I'm also a graduate student here at UCI, and I work with uh, Professor uh, Nalini Venkata-Subramanian and Sharad Mehrotra. And uh, I'm working with Hojak with this uh, software uh, software that, um, well, as he was saying, I think he he actually summarized it very good, but it's mainly the idea is that all these gadgets, all these sensors that we have, um, if you have to learn how to access all of them, well, it's almost impractical. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is we're trying to provide a software layer on top of some software tools, so then it's very easy for people to actually use all these sensors and without having to know all the little details.
2: Okay, so we're going to talk. Well, I can't wait to get to the privacy part about how we are going to give people the right to privacy. So now let's move on.
1: Uh, hi, my name is Ravi. And like most people here, I am a student of Sharad Merotra. My current research focuses on securing remote storage. Basically, the just to keep it in perspective, the whole idea is we have a lot of data that we maintain mm-hmm. well, in computers. When the data leaves your computer, there is no notion of security that is associated with it. Unless it's
2: encrypted, right?
1: Well, yes, unless it's encrypted. Or cryptographically, you would transform the data in such a way that nobody else gets to know your data other than you. Or maybe there are certain secrets that you know which will help you decrypt the data. So there's a very interesting trend that's emerging right now on the Internet. It's basically there are many data storage providers that are coming up, and they give you data storage for free. For example, Gmail is one example. Yes. It allows you to store emails, send emails, and so on and so forth. And you, know, you can get them wherever you are, from as long as you're with a computer that's connected to the Internet. The problem of storing data with these kind of storage providers is that you lose control over your data, its privacy and its security. So Gmail has access to your data, or anybody who can get into Gmail's systems will have access to your data. Just to give you an example of this being a very real threat, and that has already happened, there was an instance in China recently, where there was a Chinese man who was jailed because he sent a pro-democratic email using Yahoo. Since he sent the email, now he's spending 10 years in jail because Yahoo cooperated with uh, this repressive regime, let's call it that way, and gave him the email. Although this is a personal email, and Yahoo had no business to do it. Once you give data to these storage providers, you do lose control. So my research focuses on transforming the control back to the user in such a way that I will still use the service that is provided by the Internet storage providers, but I'll make it in such a way that the data... Can only be used by me, or can only be seen by me, but not anybody
2: else. So, is it also anonymous, so that the the data that goes in there is anonymous? Uh, in other words, your not your not name really because I mean, you might have personal stuff in that email, right? So you couldn't really make it anonymous.
1: I guess the the storage providers do know that I'm storing some data with them, so it's not anonymous, but they do not know the content of the data. But Anonymity could basically mean that somebody stored the data, but you don't know who stored the data. But it, my research focus is not on such solutions. It's more like the data that is stored is still mine, but the content of that data is unknown. It's encrypted, basically. Okay, it's encrypted? Yeah. Okay. So, so,
2: and only law enforcement can get to it. Is that right?
1: No, not really. Not even the law enforcement.
2: Okay, so that <laughs> probably is now is you're going to have a problem with it because that seems to be the issue is that law enforcement wants to have access to, uh, to communications when they want to fight terrorism, for example. So that's the one issue that seems to uh, override the privacy interests is if law enforcement can have access to it. So are you working with that in your research as well no. or dealing with that issue?
1: No, not really, not at this stage. But, yeah, in the future probably I would like to build perhaps systems which – have a loophole that might allow law enforcement to actually. Only use. them. Yeah, they, only, only they them. would get the key. Yeah, but, right. Uh, not right now. Is my data really secure? If it's really secure, then only I should have access to it, not anybody else, right. not even law enforcement. I don't think I'm contributing to terrorism anywhere. As yeah. These things can be achieved even well, now. Well, no,
2: you're not. But if you, but if good people like us that, that are sitting here can use it, then there's always that question of who who else could use it. And if they can use it to mask email that is, is saying things that, that could be found by the Secret Service or the CIA or the FBI, um, then they would want access to it. So, I mean, that's, that's what I hear from my law enforcement friends whenever we talk about these kinds of issues is, you know, encryption, you know, 128. Is that what you're using, 128-bit encryption or what?
1: It's more than 128. It's 448, <laughs> so yeah, probably more secure. Like yeah,
2: will be interesting. Okay, no, I, I, you know, I'm one for privacy. That's why I have the show, but I, I know that there's some certain constraints. But
1: I'll be happy to show you the system. Uh, yeah, I'll have a shameless plug. If, yeah, if, if you if you allow, yeah, we have developed a system called Gwald. It's called Gwald. G, yeah, G G-Wald. Gwald. So the website for the system is gwald.ics.uci.edu. The systems. Not done yet, but in a few weeks we will be releasing the system. So anybody listening to this, please go ahead, go to the URL and download, use the system, and okay. uh, kick it tested it out.
2: We can and put that up on our website too, so people can see yeah, it. Yeah, we nice. can. We yeah. can add it. Sure, Absolutely. we can.
1: Absolutely.
6: Yeah. Okay. And, uh,
2: oh, thank you. Lots of good stuff. All right.
6: Hi, uh, I am Bijit Hore. Uh, I am perhaps the most senior student here, along with Zingbo. Um, so I have been also working on various. Uh, privacy-related issues uh, over the last few years. Um, and I've been working a little bit more on the theoretical aspects of uh, uh, th- this goal of providing privacy in different kind of applications. So as it happens, the privacy connotations uh, depends really on the application's uh, features and the properties. So. Um, uh, the other students, uh, kind of researchers, uh, talked about a few different um, projects that are being done here. And um, guaranteeing the appropriate level of privacy in each of these scenarios has different implications on the design of those systems. And I kind of look into the details. Okay, of so give us things. some yeah. examples here. So, for instance, um, so let's start with this uh notion of anonymity in a smart space, or privacy uh, in this pervasive space, as we call, the, uh, call it here. Uh, so when we're designing a pervasive space where information is being collected continuously in a distributed fashion by hundreds or perhaps even thousands of different sensors, and they are being uh, stored at some central location, being queried subsequently uh, for detecting Certain events that are happening. So uh, right now in this yeah. room,
2: we have a bunch of sensors everywhere, right? Exactly. Why don't you describe some of them in here? And so,
6: so for instance, uh, so here, uh, assume that there was a rule that this, uh, as you can see, that the maximum occupancy of the room is uh, seven, and we are obviously uh, more than that. So ideally, uh, this should have raised an alarm to the and uh, told. let see how
2: well it's working. <laughs>
6: yeah. Told uh, the building administrators that there is an alarmingly high <laughs> high level of occupants in this room. Right. Uh, but how do we achieve this? This has to be done completely um, uh, auto- um, automatically. So right. as the people uh, moved in, came into this room, uh, the sensors should have detected. Like we have counting sensors on the um, uh, on the in the entrance uh, uh, of this room, and it should have counted and raised this alarm. But the goal is that it should just disseminate the information that is required. It shouldn't, for instance, necessarily tell you who is in this room, okay? So we have to, so that would be more uh, data collection than required. And this is a fundamental property that we try to study. Depending on the application at hand, what is the minimum data that needs to be collected? Right, never
2: collect more than you absolutely need, right? And
6: that depends on the semantics of the application that you're designing, and it varies from uh, application to application. Uh, In Ravi's system, this has completely different design implications. In this pervasive system, it has different implications. So, for instance, um, uh, Chris was mentioning something about anonymity. So this anonymity, we have a very simple definition, we call something K-anonymous, a design to be K-anonymous, if it can guarantee that no individual is identified to a group of people less than size K. That is like, I will never know if it is one of these K people in a certain region. For instance, if Zingbo comes, and if I say that, you know, this pervasive system guarantees K-anonymity, like three anonymity, his identity could at most be revealed to the level of three different people that is it is either Zingbo or Bejit or Hojat. okay if now, Is that does, level of
2: yeah. anonymity that's i mean the level of um, releasing that information mm-hmm. is only to those who he wants it to be released to uh, is that no, no
6: so th- so this I' am giving an example of a very simple privacy policy that we are trying to say it needs to be implemented so uh, if the system doesn't need to know the identity of the person, but it still needs to gather various data uh, for detecting other kind of events, how do I design the system so that uh, this level of privacy is always guaranteed to each individual or user of this system. Designing such a system, as it turns out, is a pretty complicated uh, uh, job, and it it has a lot of different design implications that we have to take into consideration right from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I could give some more examples of this notion of anonymity.
2: Well, Uh, you know, it makes me think of, you know, when the New York Times had a big article a few months ago that you may have read about how, even though, um, you know, information that was collected by ISPs um, it would show where people visited, for example, but they didn't have a name, and they didn't have a Social Security number. Exactly. But from finding out where they visited, yes, what yes, they bought, exactly. they could actually come back and then exactly. determine who the name so was. So, for
6: instance, uh, for instance uh, it is known that if I you I take kn- my
2: dog to what vet? Exactly. No, you and don't I even buy n- certain things, and I you know, get newspaper delivered to a certain address, Right. All those little tiny pieces put together actually identify me, even though none of them said my name or my social security number. It could then all be profiled together to find out exactly who I am.
6: Absolutely. And now
2: it's been revealed many, many times. Exactly. So how do you deal with that when you're collecting everything on these GS? Uh, GPSs and RFIDs, and how do you deal with that?
6: So that is <laughs> the that is the key challenge <laughs> of this. And that's uh,
2: a sixty four thousand dollar question, absolutely, right?
6: Absolutely, <laughs> perhaps more. <laughs> and uh, that's what we are looking into. So we have we have uh, our design um, uh, constraints and uh, design um, such uh, features which will guarantee. The, this exact, this property, when we we say that we are collecting data in such a way that nobody will be able to locate you exactly at any point in time unless you violate a certain rule or a policy, in which case your uh, mm-hmm. uh, identity will be revealed. And that's the, that's exactly the goal of designing, uh, building privacy into this system.
2: So, right. Um, so, so what you know, you're dealing with RFID's and GPS, and you're collecting this data. How much of this are you storing, Chris?
3: Um, the answer to that is, during a drill, we will store that data, and and it's covered under the Institutional Review Board policy, uh, during the normal course of event, none of this data is collected unless it is about one of us who are already part of the IRB protocol, and we're doing experiments on um, the coffee pot that always keeps being one of those benign uh, uh, ideas that keeps, you know, cropping up. But if we're saving some of that data, it's data, you know, we're very careful to stay within the limits of our IRB protocol. And uh, only people uh, who are on the protocol and part of the research team, we can save that data and experiment with it. We never release it beyond beyond our our own research group. Now, if um, it's during a drill, we do save that data, However, that data is never released beyond our own research team, and any outside researcher who is interested in joining our research team is, can feel free to do so, but they have to uh, be added to the IRB protocol, they have to take the IRB exam, which is an a, uh, a examination that, that proves that they know, you know how to protect people's privacy and, and how to um, perform human subjects research. Um, any social science experiment that we've done on top of that, you know, we also collect those data sets. And uh, an example of the data sets we collect um, are, are uh, anonymous, and the, there's no identifying factors kept on those data sets. So we would ask you as an evacuee number N, number 32, how did you find out your evacuation route? Uh, how long did it take you to evacuate approximately? Did you follow? Did you lead? Would, uh, could you trace out? and We actually have these traces. Could you trace out your evacuation route? Through the building, so those kinds of things we keep on file. Again, it's all covered under IRB, so it, uh, you know, it's nothing that's uh, ever released publicly. Even when we're writing our papers and releasing those public, these public papers that uh, we're published on, we're very careful to know the difference between what we can release and and what we can't release as far as data, data goes.
2: Now, you you keep talking about this coffee pot thing, so I wanted you to explain. You had sent me a little note that somebody was in charge of the coffee pot. Who who is that that's uh, done the research you were talking about? That was the
3: – I can't find my little sheet well, if, here. If you're talking about Hojax um, and, and uh, Danny's research on how to uh, uh, how to uh, mask out coffee pots, I think they have a, a little uh, demo. Can, can you guys show that?
2: Yeah, and you're going to have to walk us through by talking as well. So we're going to give you the microphone to do that.
3: While they're getting set up, let me introduce you to the, uh, the director of our project. Oh. Professor Sheridan Rocher. Sheridan, Professor? He's not only the PI for the rescue project and the response for project, but he's also in charge of our
2: privacy research. Oh, hi. Would you um, introduce yourself on the radio show and tell us what's most important to you about the privacy aspect of this technology?
7: So I'm Sheridan Rotra. I'm a professor in computer science and also director for the rescue project. So I don't know how much you know about rescue, but rescue consists of five different projects, which is uh, – different sets of technologies we are uh, building uh, for the purpose of uh, handing these technologies over to the first responders to help them in their process of data collection, information sharing across different organizations and so on and so forth, and disseminating information to the public. So a lot of, when whenever you deal with data <coughs> uh, and information technology tools, the challenges, privacy challenges crop up basically. Privacy is fundamental uh, when you are dealing with let's say information about public and which is personalizing information and you and, and you're utilizing that information for let's say improving a particular process you need to have that information <clears throat> but at the same time this very information that enables let's say you to be able to build a system if misused, results in a privacy violation so there's a this uh, basically trade off between utility that you get out of data and versus the privacy challenges that arises
2: right i mean so, there's a real difference between security and privacy Yes. you can have a lot of security without privacy but
7: absolutely. you may
2: not be able to have privacy without security
7: That's but, also absolutely but uh,
2: you definitely need to have privacy I mean especially for you know most people don't have a clue of all the great technology that's going on in here right. and they don't know often when there is an RFID maybe in their you know their tag right. <laughs> that they're wearing of course I knew it this was transparent so what are some of the issues that you're uh, grappling with in terms of privacy and all this
7: so one of the uh, fundamental things that one uh, uh, that are looking into is that as you build technology, can you build technology in a socially conscious fashion and spec- so again, socially conscious is a lot of different connotations, but the specific one that we are kind of focusing on is the privacy implication of it so i 'll give you an example maybe or two uh, which relate to something like this. <laughs> uh, there was this, I don't know if Chris mentioned this particular example to you earlier or not, but we were visited by lots of law enforcement people, uh, especially like uh, LAPD. Now, a while ago, LAPD had uh, basically um, a legislation, I guess, internally that every patrol car will carry with them a video camera. And the idea was that it's technology for protecting, let's say, LAPD when they kind when they go make arrests or they kind of uh, uh, stop people in the traffic or whatever. <clears throat> because right. you're capturing it in the video, so you have evidence in that sense, right? But the reality was that <clears throat> the same evidence that is supposed to kind of help the LAPD, they found out that most patrol cars and most officers like feign momentary uh, problems with technology and they can kind of switch it off or they break it. Oh. And there's a reason for it because this very same thing, if misused in a wrong way can actually show them in a very negative light. And right. there are evidences for it. Like uh, To give you an example of it, like if they were going into a making a drug arrest or whatever, a common practice that the bad guys do is that they'll put up women and children in front and the police officer is kind of dealing with something which is a complex right. prop situation, so he'll brush them apart, rush in. Now, if you just take the segment of the video, which is, and you put that in the newscast, which just shows the police officer, Pushing people apart, that looks pretty negatively on on the uh, the police officer. So the point is that technology helps significantly or can help processes. But at the same time, it can also be something which, if misused, result in uh, uh, problems for the very people it's supposed to help for. In our case, we are developing lots of different technologies, which are handheld technologies and situational awareness technologies, to be handed to the first responders. So uh, an example is the pack system that uh, I guess Right, to we see. talked
2: about that, right. We so talked
7: about that. So here's pack It has complete localization information about you as well. Now the goodness of pack is it can give you localized, correct information when you need it, and that really is very useful uh, to the first responder. But the badness of it, potentially, could be that it also has a track as to who, what exactly the first responder did when he went to, or she went to, let's say, fight a crisis. This informational record as to what they did potentially is very useful, but it can help improve processes next time, but it can also be incriminatory. The question is the decision whether this information should or should not be collected and utilized, should not lie with, basically, or should not be enforced on it. So can one design technologies in such a way that the option whether this information should be used or should not be used is at the end in the hands of the people who actually ex- employ technology. And, and that, that leads to a
2: lot of worries because if you're going to, is it going to be used um, against someone, you're saying? Right. But at the same time, um, it has to kind of go both ways, yes. you know? If you if you are going to use it for the first response to help, are you then going to delete it immediately when, and how long do you keep it? What yes. What other secondary use are you going to have of this? And that yes. that's the issue, that is, is you have same. to have the rules built into the system.
7: Absolutely, but also if you say, I'm going to delete it. So like, this is very typical of surveillance data, for example. Say, so we're
2: going to delete it after I'm going we delete it. It. The good guy.
7: Problem is only one. While institutions are very honest at times, the people who work for institutions are not necessarily completely honest. Mm-hmm. And it only takes one bad guy to kind of change this almost entirely. So right. the question is that, at the end of the day, privacy is by no all means a social problem and a, a problem maybe for the law, potentially, and for the society in general, it's a social problem. But what technology can do, and that's what we are trying to go towards, is to empower, let's say, the social people, the people, to make the decisions. It's not that the same thing is forced by technology. So coming back to the example of deletion, I may have a policy that every five minutes I'll delete the data if there's nothing useful in it, or I will never show it to somebody unless they can significantly prove that there is a need for them to see it. But right. all such pulses are built to be broken. They yeah. will all be broken sometime or the other, either by hacking or deliberately. Right. The question is, can one then, and that's I think what vigil is trying to get towards, can you really design a system where you don't need to depend upon this aspect of, let's say, human being honest in their th- task they do. The technology really offers you an opportunity of storing data in such a way that there is no possibility of theft at all. So can you? Get rid of the problem completely. Can you build the system which essentially is guaranteed to give you privacy?
2: It seems to me that if you have certain privacy principles that you put into place for all the technology and then you compare what you're doing with certain privacy principle questions, that would help you to build a system that's fair all across the board is to have those in place of we're we're not gonna collect without someone knowing that it's being collected. It's talking about, you know, the information privacy principles that have, were developed, like, in the 1970s. We have in front of us, oh, here's the coffee cup thing. <laughs> Thank you, sir. We're looking at a screen that has a coffee carafe, and it looks like it's still on the heating system, right? right exactly.
5: There? It's still in the coffee machine. And then we, uh, next week we have we could see with another camera, and we can see whoever is in the kitchen. So the camera on the right is actually showing Chris in the coffee room. But he gets masked out unless he violates some policy. For testing our policy that he cannot violate, it's very simple. We're just checking whether, wherever he removes the coffee pot.
2: Okay, so we see he's kind of blocked out. I saw him for a second there, but now he's kind of like a, a, a meshed-out person. Getting the coffee, and he got the coffee
5: exactly. And then when he re- when he uh, puts the the coffee pot back, then he gets masked out again. So the idea here is that unless he's doing something wrong, unless he's doing something that uh, unusual, we uh, obfuscate him on the video.
2: Okay. So if he does something wrong, it'll show it who he is. But if he doesn't do anything wrong, it'll it'll mask him out exactly. How does it know to do that?
5: Well. That's actually a good point. For simple things, like you can do some image processing and detect, like this case, you can detect whether he removes the coffee pot or not. Uh, you could extrapolate this to other uh, scenarios, because, I mean, we use this as our tool for testing. It's not that we're interested in who gets the coffee pot, but you could use that in an airport, see who leaves some object unattended, for instance. And uh, what is even more, more challenging than that then, is actually learning whether it's abnormal or not, but that's a research issue by itself.
2: So, so you've built into the system that it can tell when somebody's doing something that's right or wrong, and when they do something wrong, you find out who they are. And if they're not doing anything wrong, you don't find out who they are? Is that that's how it works? That's what we are
5: uh, building, exactly.
0: These are some policies that we define here. I
2: these policies can be applied for other... That's pretty interesting. Now, how would you, I wonder how that would work basically with the RFID. Well, although the RFID could be read from further away. You'd have to build in some safeguards that would mask what's on my RFID. But if I, if I came in the room and I wasn't doing anything wrong, um, it wouldn't read it? How would that work? Would that well, you there? could
5: actually... Um, your RFID has a number. Right And it has to be matched with your Id- identification somewhere else, so by only the number or by encrypting the number or applying certain techniques, we can actually um, mask your ent- identification hmm. and then unless you actually need to know who you are, then I don't go and check it okay I mean that's like simplifying it
2: yeah that's that's pretty good. amazing. Chris, let me get you back on here. We have Lloyd says we have about five more minutes, so I wanted to get to usability issues here
3: there is a, a whole Thrust of research that we have that, that looks at just the uh, the adoption of technology and and some of this privacy technology. You know, it, it uh, can present usability issues. So so we're looking at ways that we can mitigate those issues by by virtue of making uh, either the technology more seamless and more transparent and and things you don't have to think about. And we're also looking at at, um, at uh, some of the social aspects behind this adoption because not. Just because this technology is seamless and, uh, it's, you know, easy to use and all of these things, there's still that barrier that has to be dealt with. And that's, you know, the human beings, you know, kind of innate distrust of, of technology that, uh, that, you know, perhaps they don't understand or perhaps they're unfamiliar with. So, you know, or
2: perhaps we, it takes a lot of information about them that maybe they don't want people to have. It,
3: absolutely. Yeah. So we have to, you know, look at uh, what kind of barriers to the adoption of that technology exist and if uh, we can come up with a creative and innovative ways to to uh, uh, mitigate those, those barriers.
2: Let me ask you something. I know we only have a couple minutes left, but here we are sitting at the University of uh, California, Irvine, and I saw that you have this... The Kamas, or the Kamas, where you have on quite a few of the buildings, you have this smart technology. Why don't you talk about that real quickly about that technology and do students know that it's there and are they made aware? Is it transparent?
3: (laughs) So, uh, one one thing that we've done with with our research project is yes, we've created what we call this smart space, this uh, infrastructure for. uh, Proving what disaster or, uh, disruptive technologies, and that's kind of how we build it, is an infrastructure to uh, provide testing in a test bed for disruptive IT technology. Now, part of that disruptive technology may now. Be, let me
2: just say, what disruptive? I finally know what you mean by that. That it's going to change the technology. That's what you meant nest, by disruptive. The next
3: epoch or the next evolution of technology. Right, you know, We're right. we're not interested. Well, I mean, to some degree, we are, but we're, but uh, we really want to revolutionize the right. way. Uh, technologies used not just in in disaster response, but uh, this right. this uh, revolutionary privacy technology. So, so,
2: so let's get back to this. I'm, I I hear that this <laughs> technology is in let's say lots of in engineering, Calit two. It's in the gateway buildings in the ring road. It's um, in the administration <laughs> building. It's going to be and you know like a third of the campus. The new student center is going to have it. So. So tell me, there's going to be RFID readers, there's going to be GPS, surveillance, <laughs> tell me, is that right? Minority Report. <laughs> oh, everybody's, well, I, I know what you mean. Oh, right, yeah. right. So, right, so uh... tell me about that. This is happening right here. Yeah,
3: yeah the Truman Show. Okay, that was... so you got to finish
2: this here because we only have another Okay, minute. well, well, one thing
3: I would say, the students benefit because one thing that we put out there is Pervasive 802.11. Now, that was paid for out of, out of our grant in, in cooperation with NACS, and uh, we all work together to bring... Those are basically, are the cameras, right? No, this is the uh, communication technology. Okay. So all of the students, th- they're able to use this network when it's not during drill mode. So during drill mode, we reserve the right to use it exclusively. But they're benefiting from that because they can sit out in anywhere in response sphere, do their homework, connect to the Internet, uh, download their files, whatever they have to do over the Internet. They're basically using our technology. And, so they're and,
2: using your ri- wireless technology. They're they're, u- <laughs> are there things that protect them from spyware etc do they
3: have to have it on their own software <laughs> they they it's completely open for them to use in in any fashion they they so okay. fit so we haven't embedded any of our uh privacy preserving technology any of our surveillance technology none of that has been embedded out there okay. now the optical sensors the acoustic sensors things like that are normally shut off, except when we are doing some testing. So, I see. But they're only brought up during drills. So you know we're as you know as you can see probably more concerned with privacy implications than the average research group because that is one of our thrusts. But all that technology is is uh, normally shut off and inaccessible except to the researchers who have been trained. In IRB protocols and and who are on this IRB protocol that filed with the university, so those researchers do have access to that technology, but no one else outside of that. And and
2: they only have access in in one of the drills. Is that right?
3: During the drills, or if we're testing, so we put up this acoustic sensor, we want to see how it's working. So during the testing, but we're very much so. So let me leave you with this: these kinds of smart buildings, these kind of pervasive spaces, are only going to increase as you know civilization becomes more you know technology-oriented as technology advances and becomes bigger. So so really there's nothing anyone can do to ever stop that. And it would be very right. foresighted oh, to stop these advances in technologies. What I think we should do, and I think w- what you'll find the opinion of the researchers here, is – is that we need to come up with uh, innovative ways to to protect people's privacy and uh, empower them to protect their own privacy and give them the tools, the privacy knobs that we talked about to protect their own privacy and take th- these kind of self-protective actions within the domain of privacy.
2: Yeah, and I think as researchers and as scientists, as you all are, is – Most people can't do it on their own and don't know how to do it, as we've seen that they can't even run their Norton. So I think the real issue as one who deals with people with privacy all the time is, you need to build into these systems. I'm not trying to stop the technology. But build into each of the system the privacy enabling technology that will help us to do it ourselves. And that, and then Lloyd says that's the end. So you you've been listening to KUCI eighty eight point nine FM in Irvine. We're sitting here right on the campus at KLIT. Thank you guys. You've been wonderful, and um, I'm and uh, thank you. And join us next week. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and
0: views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. sound bites, and constant visual stimulation telling us how to look, act, talk, and feel, we have lost our ability to connect.
2: Instead of focusing on what celebrities are doing as if they were our acquaintances, maybe we can look more to each other to emulate and learn from. Join us Friday mornings from 8am to 9am with Peace by Peace, where we discuss issues that affect our peace peace of humanity and peace in our time.